started out as any other day, said 85-year-old Betty Bram. She stood under a tree at the Chico Elks Club, sipping her hot chocolate. I was doing my devotions, and my daughter came in and said, Mom, there's a lot of smoke coming up over that hill. Within minutes, Branham continued, that smoke was mixed with flaming red embers dropping from the sky, sparking small fires. She grabbed her Bible and her two dogs and fled with her daughter. Fast, she added. Like many others, she navigated a stretch of highway when fire was coming from both sides of the road. And Burnham remembers, I could feel the heat of the fire on my face as we were getting out of there. Paradise has burned to the ground. Of course, I mean the town of 25,000 in California, about three hours north of San Francisco. That town where older folks like Branham, people without a lot of money, people who found an affordable slice of California where they hoped to live happily in their retirement. Branham lost her husband a few years ago, and a daughter then bought a piece of land and a small home in Paradise where they both could live. As of this morning, 149,000 acres have been scorched by the blaze. 11,862 structures have been incinerated. Buildings that include homes, schools, churches, grocery stores, libraries, restaurants, beauty parlors, and corner bars. Seventy-six have been reported dead, with more than 1,200 still reported missing. Those who survived by careening down highways while wildfires jumped the road and smoke created blinding walls are now cobbling together lives with relatives or in Airbnbs or in recreation vehicles. Some watched the 20-foot wall of flames devour their homes, while others left as their neighborhoods were being evacuated and still don't know what destruction could stand before them. The so-called campfire, named for the camp road where the fire started, is the deadliest fire in the history of California. Veteran journalists and firefighters describe the level of destruction as heartbreaking, staggering. I'm sure you've seen the photos of stretches of charred tree-lined streets and cement slabs where homes once stood. The remnants of automobiles and even a school bus incinerated to the frame. Cots stretched out over basketball courts as YMCA's 
have now converted to evacuee centers. The news these past two weeks of California has been devastating, has it not? First, another mass shooting where 12 young people at an all-ages club for country music are killed and many others injured. This just barely a week after the mass shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. A friend of mine is a pastor in Thousand Oaks, California, where a prayer service was scheduled the next day to honor those victims and to pray for the community as they mourned this tragedy. Only it was canceled because the neighborhood was evacuated for yet another wildfire, the one named Wolseley. It was just a few days later and a little further north when Betty would lose her home in the campfire. I'm wondering, do you ever get the sense that our world is just broken? That it's not the way it was created to be? That hatred between races and shooting of innocent people and out-of-control fires, devastation to entire communities, toxic pollution in our skies and in our rivers, this is not what God had in mind when the world was created. Of course, Scripture tells us this from the very beginning. Throughout the first chapters of Genesis, we hear, Let there be stars and water and creeping and crawling creatures and male and female. And it was very good. As humans, we were created to be creatures of God in all its majesty and glory. We were not created to be slaves or puppets. In a place like the Garden of Eden, the theological time and place where all was right with the world, we could love. We could eat. We could explore. We could enjoy. We could be free. Trusting and depending on all that God provided, all our needs were met. But humans wanted more. From that very beginning, at our very core, the human impulse was to find different tools to shape our own lives. We still do it, don't we? As one author said, if this were not so, there would be no place for marketing or for advertisements. But we are human. And so we look to tools like addresses we purchase and investment portfolios we build, vacations we take, cars we drive, and clothes we can wear. We use those props to shape our lives. Yet instead of making lives so often we create our own demise. 
first man and the first woman who looked not to God to shape their identity and to meet their needs, but to each other and to the props they found around them. And for the first time, they experienced nakedness and then shame. And they had to evacuate. And that was the first time paradise burned. This is what theologians call the fall. God had in mind, God had an idea in mind for how we could trust, how we could love God and each other, how we could invest our time and cherish the created world around us. But as humans, we fell away from that vision. But it's not just us who experience the loss, as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning. We see entire forests and fields go up in flames, sending debris and toxins into rivers. We see tsunamis hit shores with such force that it takes away human life, along with any structure in its way. We see earthquakes literally swallow up a square mile of light. Winds blow and embers fly. The midday sun is blocked with the ash-filled haze. And so we all wait eagerly for redemption, a hope through which we are saved. Of course, the question has been and continues to be, how do we live in a world so broken? How can we go on living in a world that is literally burning down? During the month of November, as we celebrate our 60th anniversary, we have been considering the words we hear each Sunday as we gather for worship. They serve as our statement of faith, if you will. You can find them printed on the front page of your bulletin. Welcome to God's house, where faith is a journey, God is good, and today we will consider the phrase, Jesus saves. Now this claim is not unique. To Mayflower. It's an assertion Christians have made for centuries. We confess it at a baptism, at a confirmation. We see it printed on the side of a building like Mel Trotter Ministries, finding us like a beacon in the night. But what does it mean? How can we say with confidence while paradise is burning down before our eyes? that Jesus saves. Leanne Van Dyke is a theologian from Grand Rapids who some of you might know. She had the great misfortune of living in the apartment below Mark and me 
when we were in seminary. And there were many nights when she was trying to work on her Ph.D. dissertation, and Mark was hosting band practice. Let's just say words were exchanged over the two years we lived that way. I found a helpful article she wrote, Finding the Right Words for Salvation in the Here and Now. And I'm not going to say that she developed those ideas in seminary as she typed that keyboard angrily through gritted teeth, as the strains of the guitars and drum beats shook the floorboards of our apartment. But it is possible. In her article, Van Dyke reminds us that Jesus saves that short gospel summary has been explained over the centuries in dramatically different ways. The early church saw the death of Christ as a decisive victory in a cosmic battle between good and evil. Through his death, all creation knows the dramatic defeat of the powers of darkness, and so the claim Jesus saves reminds us that we too have and can overcome any battle with evil. The war is won, though we are still fighting battles. Medieval Christians interpreted this claim through the image of prisons and courtrooms. Sin traps us like a prison, often of our own making, and this sin must be paid. However, we have no human ability to pay such a great ransom, and so Jesus saves, speaks to a desperately indebted humanity, which can only be set free through a gift from God, which he paid in the form of Christ's life. Today, the church still seeks the right word for how we can understand Jesus saves while paradise is burning. Benedict suggests that we look to the way God recreates, the way God brings new life into creation. To say Jesus saves affirms the truth that God has not abandoned this world. To say Jesus saves is to be able to see God's presence as a way forward in a fallen world. But that's not the whole story. This past summer, I had the privilege of traveling with our youth to Providence, Rhode Island. We spent a day in Boston, and in Instead of dodging those infamous drivers and finding parking for our 12-passenger vans that measured about 9 feet in height, we decided to travel with our group of 20 using public transportation, locally known as the T. 
As we walked up the stairs from the underground train, our eyes were adjusting to the daylight. We were greeted by red-vested, exceptionally friendly people who referred to themselves as ambassadors. They asked, can we show you the way to your next destination? As I read Van Dyke, I was reminded of these people, the unexpected and much-needed gift as we wandered out of darkness and confusion in the subway. Jesus saves. Because we cling to this promise, we sharpen our eyes to see for ourselves the way God is stirring new life in the ruins, the disappointment and brokenness of life. We accept a promise that allows us to recreate ourselves, and then we serve as ambassadors, as we live in a way that shows others where to find the clues that God is still with us. I wonder if that's what someone was trying to say in the scene captured by the photographer Noah Berger on the front page of your bulletin. The promise of a presence, the commitment to new life and to recreation is not always as obvious as a crush placed on a landscape of incinerated cars and homes. But that's where we come in as ambassadors. We strive to find the right words to say and then to live into God's truth that everything will become new again. This month we are celebrating 60 years of Mayflower living into the promise that Jesus saves, and then pointing others towards that promise. We are remembering 60 years of men and women, youth and children, who affirm that God has not abandoned this world. God is present with us, stirring new life. For 60 years, we have witnessed this promise to the community and to the world. But that's not just our history. In this last week, we have walked this way and shown others the hope of this promise. On behalf of our congregation, nine volunteers created a home out of a rundown mobile home. They cleared out debris, they cleaned, they painted, they brought new life a structure that was worn. This marks the 14th home Mayflower has provided a family who did not have a place to live. The volunteers, as well as the families, are acutely aware that Jesus saves. Each week, over 50 people request that we put their names on our prayer list. They are families who are celebrating justice served, new 
with their family than the diagnosis originally promised. They are coming to us and asking us to show them God's presence in the darkness of mourning. They are coming to us and asking us to walk alongside of them, to show them the way God recreates each new day as they struggle to know where to see God's presence in their illness. In a few moments, we will greet each other with the peace of Christ, and you've already hugged each other, so this will be something new to consider. About 20 years ago, I served a congregation where the practice of passing the peace had just been introduced. After a few weeks, church members began to talk about this in the parking lot. The next week, the conversation moved into the coffee hour, and the next week, the conversation was placed in the pastor's office. They informed him that a lot of people didn't like it. They didn't want to do it anymore. And I'll never forget his response. He said, we can't stop. Because in that moment, every person who walked into this place, who came to worship with us this morning, will receive the promise that Jesus is present in their lives. They are not alone. Jesus saves. Van Dyke admits there is no single explanation that can adequately express what we mean when we say Jesus saves. And it is no accident that the Christian tradition contains a range and a variety of explanations. For a single one cannot bear the weight of accounting for the truth of God's love to a lost world. I think this is what Eric Westerveld, the NPR reporter, learned that day when he finished his interview with Betty Branham under that tree in Chico. She finished the last sip of her hot chocolate and looked like her thoughts had moved to another place. He asked her, do you hope to rebuild? Betty responded instantly, right now we're overwhelmed. We, we don't know. We're just taking one day at a time. Then she mentioned she was going to go inside to look over the clothing donations. She wanted to find something to wear to the church on Sunday. Westerville nodded and said rather awkwardly, I hope there are brighter times. Betty turned and said, do you suppose I could get a hug? The NPR reporter didn't mention anything, but I wonder, as Betty hugged him, if he heard all of creation whisper the words, Jesus saves.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.